This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. Trusting in a treacherous man in a time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. For those of you who came in late, my name is Ruth Sun, and I'll be your associate pastor in about five weeks. Um, I'm thankful Ted invited me down this weekend. It allows me the opportunity not only to preach, but to find a house in God's grace. Our house in Chapel Hill is under contract, so we're really thankful for that. And uh, we're hoping to hopefully solidify something down here in the next week. But, you know, as I think about I'm going to be here in five weeks from now, I'll be a little honest. It's very overwhelming. Uh, yeah, I'm just bombarded with all the details of what it means to move down here and then actually to find a place down here and set up shop and simple things like where am I going to go shopping and who's going to be my wife's doctor, etc. And so it, it becomes kind of difficult. Now, I preached this sermon I'm about to preach for you, at least a version of it on friendship about six weeks ago from my own congregation. And I was depressed the whole week going up to that sermon, not realizing that I'm not a very good friend. And the passage revealed that about me. And so this week, as I've been preparing for the sermon, I had another crummy week. Because I recognize I'm just not a really good friend. And it also made me deal with various things I don't like to deal with, like the loneliness of being a lead pastor of a church. And so there's all these waves and layers of emotion that this text has brought out for me, and I have a feeling it'll be brought out for you as well. This room is full of very busy, transient, successful, well-educated, independent people. And despite the, despite the fact that you have people all around you, and your life is complicated with people all the time, most of you in this room are really lonely. And this passage deals with what real friendships are. It's un- unapologetic, and it'll force us to deal with our loneliness, and sometimes our inability to be a good friend head-on, and that's just never fun. So those warm, encouraging words. Let me pray for us again, and we'll jump right in. Father in heaven, you've given us Jesus, and he is a tremendous friend to us. And so we beg you by his spirit in our lives that you'd give us eyes to see him, our great friend, ears to hear your spirit speaking in our lives, not only showing us that we're loved, but maybe showing us how we fail to latch on to our friend Jesus 
and how we fail to be his hands and the friends you've given us, that we might repent and then we might rejoice in the salvation you've given us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple years ago, I read a tremendous book. It was called The Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. It was written by Doris Goodwin, and it's a fascinating book. It's a fascinating book that reveals all these layers of human history I never knew before, like how Lincoln got into office, how he chose his cabinet, and why he chose it. All these men, although they're exceptional, that hated him, and how they eventually became his best friends. For example, there's this figure in history called Edwin Stanton. He'd utter contempt for Lincoln the first time they met each other in 1855, and he had the gall in public to call Lincoln a long-armed ape. Six years later, Lincoln offered him the post of Secretary of War. Lincoln was president, and the Union Army was getting nailed. And so it was the most important position in his cabinet. He needed a very powerful man who could refix or fix the war machine, and he needed to be a strong tower, and this was the man. After serving together, he came to respect and love Lincoln more than anyone outside his immediate family. And when Lincoln was assassinated, he grieved for weeks. Then there's William H. Seward. He was the presidential type, a two-term governor in New York. He was also a famous celebrated senator from New York as well. He had his vote. I mean, he knew he was going to go to the convention and become president. He already had the first draft of his speech well prepared, and he was humiliated in his loss to Lincoln. Lincoln offered this man the position of secretary of state for obvious reasons. He was strong. He was a leader. He had great ideas. He would openly debate Lincoln. He knew he needed strong men like that to, to right the country. But this man constantly tried to leverage his position and undermine Lincoln over and over and over, trying to choose the cabinet himself. And, and there's often, we can see from Lincoln's journals, there's times he's like, why did I ever hire this man? He's going to destroy me. But Seward went on to become one of his closest friends, advisors, and allies in administration. There's another guy, Edward Bates. He's a senior statesman, a Missouri icon. He was constantly pursued for national position year after year after year, but he was content being at home and as he aged, be taught with his family in Missouri. But a groundswell in the state from every newspaper and every organization called for him to run for president. And he seemed like a likely choice for the convention to nominate him. And he was confused and almost downright surprised by his loss to Lincoln. Lincoln offered him the post of attorney general. He was going to turn it down, but the country's in danger. And he felt this duty, this obligation, you might say, to his country, to save the country, to join on. Now, Bates thought Lincoln, when he first joined, was a well-meaning but an incompetent administrator. And the end of his time, when Lincoln was assassinated, he called him very near being a perfect man. Now, what made these great leaders fall in love with Lincoln? Sure, Lincoln had character. Sure, he had vision. Sure, he had great skills. But it was so much more than that. Their great friendship was built around a common dream, a journey to save their country, a grand mission that was bigger than any one of them, all of them put together. They fought a war together. They lived life together. In the end, it produced amazing friendship. Is the dream for City Church any less grand? Is the mission God's given the men and women that make up this beautiful community any less grand, important for what God's going to use you to do? Jesus is clear in Revelations. Behold, I've come to make all things new. And so Jesus has brought together a people here to through you and through your friendships with one another to make all things new in this beautiful city. How will you thrive on mission for the city beautiful? How will you have greatness in loving your neighbor? The wisdom literature has a very simple answer for that. 
It's friendship. And the Proverbs could not be more clear. C.S. Lewis, he had this to say about friendship. Friendship is unnecessary. Like philosophy, like art, it has no survival value. Rather, it's one of those things that gives value to survival. What's clear from our history, our experiences, you, like me, you've gotten by without deep friendships at times. But why live this way, is what C.S. Lewis had to say. Ralph Waldo Emerson, I'll from here on just call him Waldo, had this to say. A friend may be well reckoned the masterpiece of nature. A real friendship is very valuable, absolutely essential for life. And when you actually find one, you need to protect it, guard it, and treasure that friendship. But as I begin a sermon on friendship, the very word itself is confusing. Um, what exactly is a friend? I mean, is Facebook right? Some of you have 200, 300, 500 friends. Are they really friends? I hope not. You have colleagues. You have people you attend city groups with. You have neighbors. Are they friends? Wisdom literature has to tell you that you wear lots of hats and roles, and there's so many spheres of life where you to love and to engage and be righteous. But the wisdom literature goes on to say you're fortunate, downright lucky, if you have one real friend. So three things we're going to look at this morning really quickly. Uh, criteria for dropping friendships, criteria for making friendships, and criteria for finding friendships. We'll begin with dropping friendships. We're going to fly fast at this point, so just bear with me. Proverbs 19.4, wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friends. Generous people acquire friends very quickly. It's not uncommon for the wealthy to look around going, who are these folks in my life, and do they really, really love me and care about me? But it's not only the wealthy that have this problem, the beautiful, the gifted, the helpful. You see from the Proverbs, you see that real friendship is reciprocal. Do you feel used in your friendship? Do you feel taken advantage of? Folks who are gifted in, say, service, helping, and mercy often get preyed upon by really needy folks with no intention or skill in returning that love. Now hear me on this. You're going to have needy people in your life. You're going to be called to love them. There's going to be one side of relationships where God gives you someone for the very purpose of loving them and building up. But there's nothing reciprocal. They're not a friend. Proverbs 16, 28. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisper separates close friends. Well, this is getting as unrepentant liars make bad friends. Gossips make bad friends. When someone's always in the know about everyone else, run from them. And when you have a friend and they come to you and say, hey, have you heard about, and whoever the name is, guess what? They talk about you as well. Proverbs 17, 9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. See, a real friend extends grace and gets you. My son, you're going to meet him soon. He's nine years old, delightful, really friendly, athletic, fun-loving. He's just so much fun, a really sweet kid, generally very obedient. But he has blood sugar issues. So if he misses breakfast, lunch, dinner, and his afternoon snack, he just derails. And he's like another animal or beast. And there's times where he's just like suffering with his blood sugar issues. And I'm ready to discipline him for something. My wife's like, whoa, 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 calm down, calm down. It's like, here's sweetie, here's a cracker. Here's some milk, here's some juice. And then like five minutes later, my boy's back. He's repenting for whatever he did. And it's great. Real friends understand when you need a nap, when you need a hug. And when you need a rebuke. So if someone keeps working you and working you, constantly dropping the hammer on you, drop them as a friend because they don't love you. 
Proverbs 22, 24, and 25. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and tangle you yourself in a snare. Not all of us have this, but a few of you have that inappropriately angry friend. Well, I'm a pastor. I've begun to realize I am a very angry man, okay? But if I got inappropriately angry, then, you know, Ted would be embarrassed by me a lot. You know, you'd be like, oh, that's my pastor, but I'm sorry he's a little rough around the edges. But if you have a friend like that, you're having to constantly explain their behavior. Stay away from that person is what the Proverbs has to say. Proverbs 25, 17, let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. Look, you love your real friends. Your real friends can come over to your house anytime they want, and you actually enjoy them showing up. It's never an inconvenience. They show up like, hey, it's friend, and you invite them in, you give them something to eat, and you want to enjoy time with them. But if someone keeps coming over, and it feels like they're coming over too much, and they want too much for you, and it's painful or frustrating, this is your body telling you that this person is not a friend. Proverbs twenty five nineteen, trusting a treacherous man in a time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. Friends are steady. When you need them, they're there. And if they're not there and they're not dependable over a period of time, they're not a friend. The last one here, Proverbs twenty five twenty. Whoever sings a song to a heavy heart is like one who takes off her garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. A real friend mourns with you. A real friend, when you're in time of trouble and grief, doesn't try to solve all your problems, but it's there with you. They, they hold your hand. Okay, if you're a guy, they don't hold your hand. You sit somewhere looking over water, brooding together, right? You're looking into the distance, being cold and steely, but they're there, right? They're right next to you. But that's what a friend does. They engage you in your point of weakness and pain, and they're just with you. And they don't try necessarily to make you feel better. Now, that person who constantly tries to cheer you up, constantly has those you know, overly biblically stated trite sayings and can't enter your pain and has to constantly put a good spin on everything, they may be fun to hang out with, but on a rough day, they're absolutely no help. That is not a friend. Now, isn't it fascinating, before we move to the next point, how the Proverbs has a lot to say about people you should drop? Doesn't that sound kind of weird? You know, we're in the church. We're supposed to love folks, and we are supposed to love folks. But the wisdom literature is helping us to distinguish between people we're supposed to love and enjoy and those who we can consider a friend. Now, within that backdrop, let's look at the criteria of making friendships. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times and a brother's born for adversity. Decent siblings, they show up when their chips are down. When, when horrible things happen, they're there for you and they're like, what do you need? Do you need a check? Do you need to come over? What do you need me to do? And they're there. A true friend is better than a decent sibling. That person never goes away. There's a commitment to you in crisis. When times are tough, they show up even more. So look around your life. Who are you committed to? Look over the last 10 years. And who has been committed to you? Something to think about. Proverbs 18.24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Honestly, if you're like me and you're a people person, you think you're okay because there's all these people around you and there's so many people to call and you want people to hang out with or enjoy an evening with. There's just, you know who to call, you know what to do. But over time, you can tell who a real friend is. They stick to you. You can't get rid of them. They're like Velcro. But you don't want them to go away either. We live in very transient times. 
City Church is like the church I'm at. I probably lose 25% of my congregation every year, and it's painful and it's frustrating. It's the dynamic of living in a city. But you have to stick around to make friends because it just takes time. If you have someone that's stuck to you over the last 10 years, you're the lucky one. You're the blessed one. So questions to think about. Are you stuck to anyone? Is anyone stuck to you? Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. All right, I got a story for this one. Uh, Six weeks ago, my wife had a hysterectomy. It was painful, it was necessary. She had all this pelvic pain. I had permission to tell the story. And so she had this huge mass on her right ovary, and it was taken out and relieved all the pain. And so, you know, she's 37, 36, and she had hysterectomy. It's it's a big deal. And so we had a lot of fear and trepidation going into surgery because all the pain, will the doctors figure what's going on, what's going on inside of her, all this stuff was going on. And so she was queued up to be her doctor's second surgery. You know, so, you know, she didn't eat the night before or whatever, and she gets there, and, you know, you can't wear makeup and stuff or deodorant, and she's really excited about that, and she can't have her morning coffee, and there we are, we're in the waiting room, it's 8 a.m., we're there, we're ready, we're primed, let's get this done. <clears throat> it's 9, it's 10, it's 11, 12, they finally get us back there, and I'm like, shoo, it's a little late, but it's all right, we're going to get the surgery done, and so she's hanging back there, and then they put on the gowns, and they put IVs in you and salt sports and then she's still sitting back there it's two it's three finally a nurse shows up and says I'm so sorry but the OR heating is broken it's 95 degrees in there and we don't want the doctor to fall asleep on you while he's doing the surgery so we're trying to find another OR and because we're moving into another OR I know this sounds crazy but you need a new anesthesiologist because our anesthesiologists are connected to rooms and I don't know why that's true so we have to meet a new anesthesiologist next thing you know it's 4:30. she's finally getting her surgery Okay, 6.30, the doctor finally finds me and says, it took a while. Oh, my gosh, there's all sorts of stuff in there. But we, and she explained it all, and I was really relieved. And he's like, as soon as she wakes up, you can see her. 8.30, it took her two hours to get alert enough for me to be put in a short-term stay unit with my wife. And there she was snoring. I was so happy to see her and hear her snore. So she was recovering like a champ. It was awesome. You know, she was just sleeping and just waking up, taking a sip of water, going right back to sleep. And I was like, this is great. I had free Wi-Fi. I was working. I was watching reruns of, you know, The Office or something. And I was watching a basketball game on the TV. And I was like, oh, it's 1130. I'll go to sleep now. And then something happened. My wife, about 430, 5 o'clock, just boom, woke up. She was alert. The nurse was ecstatic to see her energy and said, you know, Kim, if you want to go take a walk, It'd be really good for your recovery. And Kim was like, this would be great. So, you know, she, she gets out and she starts walking. She uses the bathroom. And then the nurse is really dramatic. She's like, Rue, this is a beautiful evening. Why don't you take a nice romantic walk with your wife around the hospital? I was like, oh, this is great. This will be really cute and sweet. And so, you know, I'm walking next to her. And, you know, when you wake up, you're kind of tired. and You're trying to shake it off. That's how I felt. And it just kept getting worse and worse. And I would take three steps, and I'd start putting my hands down my knees. And I was like, come on, Rue, your wife just had her inside scraped out. I mean, you, you, can, you can do something here. You can walk with her. Just man up, you know. And so I kept walking, and I, I started getting warm and tingly. And then I was like, oh, no, I'm going to pass out. This would be the ultimate man moment. My wife just had a surgery, you know, blood taken out of her, and I'm going to pass out taking a walk with her in the morning so I found a chair as fast as I could and I sat down 
And, and, and then my wife kept walking without me, and then she, the nurse came and said, hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great, but my husband, I'm not sure he's doing so okay. And so the nurse came to me and said, oh, I see this all the time. It's blood sugar issues. Here's some orange juice and some crackers. I'm like, Graham Jacob, you know, I'm drinking my orange juice and my crackers. And then my wife comes up to me. It's this great moment. And with such joy and compassion, she looks over at me and says, oh, sweetie, you poor thing. You can't even keep up with me even when I have a hysterectomy. <laughs> But I love you. And then she just walks off. <laughs> She's walking. And there I am drinking orange juice. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Good friends can use honest and carefully chosen words to heal you, to confront you, to expose you, your sin and folly, and bless you. You know, my wife's you know, example, she just loves ribbing me, and it's sweet and fun. But my wife has said so many more severe things in my life to bring healing and change. Is there anyone in your life that carefully wounds you to heal you? That doesn't constantly flatter you and lift you up, but wounds you to heal you. And who do you wound to heal? Will you labor over the words to find the right way to put it together so they hear you? Proverbs 27, 9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. If you have a friend that you do not like to go to counsel, to, to hear advice from, they're not really a friend. And if there's someone in your life you depend on continuously for their counsel, they are a friend. Friends are great counselors for each other because they understand each other, and they listen, and they're truthful, and they're gracious, and there's mutual good, and they glorify God together. This is friendship, and you can't force it either happens and develops or it doesn't happen. But if you try to force that to happen, it never, ever works. So who do you love the counsel of? And, and who do you love to return the favor? Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen. Now, this proverb is the most overused proverb, and it's usually cross-stitched and put on people's walls and stuff, but bear with me. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Now, a better translation for this word would actually be friend. See, a friend sharpens you, makes you more effective. For what? Well, in general, for life. I mean, as you grow up, you have more roles. When I was 18, I was a student. Now I'm 37, and I'm a father, and I'm a husband, and I'm a pastor, and I'm a citizen. I have so many more roles, and a friend sharpens me for all those roles. But it's even greater than that. A real friend comes beside me and you and helps you to thrive in God's kingdom, enjoy the riches of God's grace, understand your gifts and callings and how to particularly work that out in your community. This is how friendships are made. These are how friendships are developed. This is what a friend does for you. So who makes you a better man or a better woman? Who makes you want to love God and others more? Who helps you to handle the challenges of life? That person is your friend. Another way of asking it, are you being a friend? Who are you doing this for? Now, with that backdrop of making and dropping friendships, let's look at the final point of criteria of finding friendships. Proverbs 26 put it this way. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. Even though you can develop a friendship, ultimately you fall into them. You discover them. They just happen. You don't make them, you just kind of stumble into them. For example, when, when you walk into a church, like, oh, I like City Church, what do you see? Well, out of 20 people you might run into, you rule out 18 of them because they don't dress the right way or look the right way or smell the right way or you quote the right pastors and authors, and you just kind of rule out 
18, you come down with two because they fit your style. And you try to make them a friend, but is that really helpful? No. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Friendship is born at the moment one person says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. It's always the common cause. It's always the common interest that brings you together. Friendship is always built on a journey, a mission, where you're on this mission and a fellow traveler shows up and you're surprised by his or her presence, but you have so much fun together on that journey together. So what's your cause? What's the cause that can bring these friendships together? See, when you try to make friendship over drinking Belgium ale or a cup of coffee and nachos, as much as you might enjoy the same music and the same things to do, it rarely builds to something meaningful. But when you do try to do something meaningful, like love your neighborhood, be great in your profession for the glory of God, it's complicated and you need people around you to help you to figure all that out. And when someone materializes like our Star Trek right next to you and they're helping you in that work and they're heading the same direction, you're overjoyed because you have a friend, because you have someone who understands and is engaged in that work. Waldo had this to say, the glory of friendship is not the outstretched hand nor the kindly smile nor the joy of companionship. It's the spiritual inspiration that comes to you when one discovers you, that someone else believes in you and is willing to trust you with a friendship. When Kim went into surgery about, what, five, six weeks ago, I wrote her a letter, and here's the portions I can read to you. I do not have to perform for you. You love me for who I am and not what I might be. You like my humor. You encourage me to be a greater man. You really believe in me. You see what I can be for God's kingdom, and you won't let me settle for anything less. That's freedom, that's love, and it sets me free, and I can't thank you enough. You see, a real friend believes in you and wants more for you, even when you don't want it for yourself. Two years ago, when Ted tried to hire me the first time around, and I said no, one of the reasons I said no is that I felt like I had chores to do in my city, and I couldn't say yes yet. And there's things God was calling me into the city, and when I wrote them down on paper, they seemed way too grandiose. When I looked at Chapel Hill, North Carolina, segregation is still there on Sunday. And the white churches and the African-American churches are so far apart. There's just very little happening in there. And I know my history. I was a South Asian kid in a, in a racially divided community. And so when I played football, I had friends who were white and I had friends who were African-American. When I was on a wrestling team, I had friends who were white. And was, I've always been a bridge builder. And so it just dawned on me, like, why don't I try to do that now? So for two years, I worked my tail off to build relationships with the key African-American leaders in the city and pastors. And by God's grace, I was able to build those friendships. And within a year and a half's time, I was being used by God to bring these forces together. And there's serious events. I won't bore you with all of them. But it was amazing what's happened the last six months in Chapel Hill. It's unprecedented. The relationships being built between white and African-American pastors. The coalition that's being built. The houses we're refurbishing together. All these things were ideas I had way beyond me, but I felt God was calling me to do them. And so I share this with people in my church, my friends and my leadership. Most of the people are like, oh, here's none of those weird ideas Rio has. I wonder how long it's going to take him to fail. Let's just wait and just let this fizzle out and he'll come up with another idea. So all I saw was a bunch of rolling eyes. I'm like, whatever. But there was three people in my church who were like, this is awesome. You so need to do this. And they'd support me and cheer me on. They were my friends. What chores has your heavenly father given to you and to your friend? Who are you believing in? How are you believing in them? So how are you feeling right now? 
Some of you feel more alone than you did when you entered this room because you realize you don't have many friends. Now, the interesting thing is I got to share this just really briefly. Is I have a history of loneliness. You know, when I was born and raised in Chapel Hill, Chapel Hill is one of the most progressive cities in North America right now. It wasn't in the 1970s when I was growing up. And so my, my neighborhood is filled with white folks. I'm not trying to categorize all of you together here. Um, but, I mean, African-American families would never last more than three years in my neighborhood. That's just the truth. The only friends I ever had to play with growing up from 1 to 16 were African-Americans, but they only lasted two or three years at a time in my neighborhood. I know loneliness. And then I was the Asian kid that had asthma before they had an inhaler, so I put on like 25 pounds, and I couldn't run five yards before I wheezed to death, okay? And so I couldn't play sports, and I didn't have friends from there either. Then finally, my asthma went away, and I could play sports, and I started developing friendships and stuff. And then right when I was just really connected to my high school, Jesus had to come into my life, right? So then I was that weird Jesus athletic guy, you know? I was like, great. I just started having friends, and now I love Jesus, and I don't have any friends anymore. All right? So I, I know loneliness. I know loneliness. I know what it means to be surrounded by people and not have friends. And you might be thinking that right now. Gosh, my, my spouse isn't a friend right now. What do I do? Others of you right now are going, I, I think I have a friend. I'm just not a very good friend. I'm totally self-absorbed. I'm completely enamored with myself and my dreams. And I don't know how to get around someone else and love them. And you kind of recognize it takes being a good friend to have friends and so you're looking at your life and you're seeing lack of friendships and it terrifies you and you have no idea what to do. With that being said, let me read John 15, verses 13 through 15 for you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. And if you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You know what's beautiful about God? I mean, the mysterious part is three in one. One God, three persons. I know that doesn't make any sense. But the very essence of God is a friendship. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit just absolutely love each other. Totally enjoy each other. Completely supportive. Their counsel is all that they need. And they're having a blast ruling the world together. And so what God created humanity, he didn't need us. He didn't need us for friendship. Rather, he created us to kind of piggyback in the friendship, to enjoy what the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have together. When God created a perfect creation, he was enjoying it because it was good. The only thing that was not good was Adam was alone. Because Adam was created in the very fabric and the essence and the image of God, he needed friendship because that's all God knows. And so there was Adam, and he was lonely, and God said, this, this isn't good. So he made Eve. For what? Companionship. Friendship. What's the gospel? The gospel is that when we are self-absorbed in our own dreams and ambitions, when we rejected God's authority and his definition for good and evil, beauty and goodness, we began to make life for our own. We brought sin into the world and we've destroyed everything. When we were alienated from him and have gone our own path, God comes and says, I'm going to make you my friend. 
When you look at the scriptures, Jesus wounds us all the time. You know, when you, know, when you do your city Bible reading, you go through the Gospels, you're like, man, this is hard, Jesus. This wasn't very fun. But long before he wounds you with his words, he was wounded for you. Long before he tells you to come take up your cross and follow him, he took up his cross and, and died for you. The beauty of the gospel is Jesus was your friend when you didn't deserve it. He came and he, he hung on a tree and he took on wrath for all your rebellion. He, he took the consequences for every way you were the worst friend in the world. He took every bit of that. In its place, he gave you his righteousness, his identity, his joy, his integrity, his character. And it's all yours. The gospel is when you didn't deserve it, and when you still don't deserve it, Jesus gives you his friendship. Meaning he counsels you. He sticks to you closer than a brother. He won't leave you or abandon you. He lives to make you greater and he sharpens you. Why? Because he will not rest until you look like him, until you're beautiful like him, until you're radiant like him. This is the good news of Christianity. Jesus is your friend. Now, here's what's terrifying. Most of us in this room know that abstractly, but rarely taste the friendship of Jesus. And sadly, but truly, one of the ways you actually do get to enjoy and taste the friendship of Jesus is through the friends that he gives you. Look, I'm a mess. I'm self-absorbed. Yeah, I was the lonely one. The, the way I do have done relationships is horribly dysfunctional. But in my wife, the last 14 years of being married to her, with her forgiving me when I had nothing to present for myself, when I've abandoned her and failed her, when she loves me, suddenly I begin to taste what the friendship of Jesus is like. Jesus lives every day to help us to see his grand friendship. This is what he does through his word, by his spirit in your life. This is what he does in the church. There's a beautiful journey awaiting us where we can walk with God as his friend and as his friend, know his friendship, in his friendship, out of his friendship, be a blessing to this world in the way he specifically designed you to be helpful. And along the way, he's going to surprise you with the richness of his love and grace. Lincoln, his worst enemies became his best friends and they changed the world together. There's no reason that can't be your story. So if you don't have a friend, start praying for one. If you do have a friend, treasure him or her. And beyond all those things, live within the friendship you have with Jesus and watch what he'll do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful, so, so thankful that you have given us Jesus. And Father, we want to recognize from the outset, we don't know how to be his friend. And so we're desperate for you by your spirit to reveal your rich love to us, to make real his grace to us in our lives. And Father, we beg you that for each of us, that you would give us friends and you'd help us to be a friend where your kingdom, your grace, your goodness is that which unites us and through us like Lincoln, he used us to change the world. We praise your blessed name, Jesus.